And so homage to the awakened one. So tonight's uh, talk, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the 32 parts of the body meditation. But then really begin to relate it to why do we do this practice? Why do we do any of these practices? This morning there was some um, time during the Q&A where such a beautiful question was asked that really boiled down to who am I? And this is a perennial question that perhaps it, it, it really does bring us to the cushion, to the mat. Actually, um, I'd like to read something from Rod McClaver. He says, why do we exist? It's a good question, too. It's similar to who am I? Why do we exist? Fifty trillion cells make up the human body, and each of those cells, in turn, consists of atoms. Countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space. Protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is space held together, space unified, even if only for a little while, by a life force. The atoms existed before the human body, and they'll exist after life has gone. And in the meantime, in this short interval, these atoms are held together by this indescribable and unknowable force. Tara Brock, she writes that the same universal forces of attraction that gathers atoms into molecules and holds solar systems spinning in galaxies also joins sperm with eggs and brings people together in communities. Powerful question, who am I? What is this? And so we sit. And I think we all know it's not easy. Even though outside, as I mentioned the other night, everything is kind of pastoral. Inside here, inside our own body and mind, it may not be so pastoral. There may be moments, of course, when there could be some stillness, some understanding, something that touches us. But it's also, um, we understand that it's not easy to do this. Hafiz, a Persian poet, wild man, I love Hafiz. He says, there's not many teachers in this world that can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days. Yep, in your closet, that would do fine. And that means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with sandwiches and get a chamber pot. No reading, no writing. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360 degree detox. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. So we're sitting, churning, being with ourselves.
So there's another beautiful reading I'd like to just share with you by William Stafford. It sets the tone for tonight's talk. It's called The Way It Is, and William Stafford is a wonderful poet, and it was his habit or his work was to write a poem just about every day in his adult life, early in the morning. And he was uh, dying of cancer, and this is the last poem that he ever wrote, which was three days before his death. He says, there's a thread you follow, and it goes among the things that change, but it doesn't change. And people wonder about what you're pursuing, and you have to explain about the thread, but it's hard for others to see, and while you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding, and you don't ever let go of that thread. Nothing you can do can stop times unfolding, and you never let go of the thread. So we're going to speak about the thread, if you will, like why are we doing this practice? So in regards to the <coughs> 33... 32 parts of the body. Right below it I wrote 33, and it's what got me. Because there is a 33 part to it, and I'll explain that to you. I wanted to take a little time to explain about this practice, and then we're going to come back to that thread of why are we doing this. And so this week you've been getting a sample and experience of the 32 parts of the body in these last couple of days we've gone through the 32 parts but I'd like to explain a little bit more about this practice and its possibilities and traditionally I mean there's many ways to teach it I've done a day long I've done a week long this is five days um, there's many different, uh, like a couple hour presentation. So there's many different ways to do this, but there's a very traditional way that, um, that I was taught that is in the text, and I wanted to let you know about that, and this is the 33-week version, or eight months. And um, how this works is that... Um, you have it's a it's a zigzag of a practice. So the first we meet once. So I've been doing this in Santa Cruz for the last six years. Believe it or not, people sign up for an eight month, thirty two parts of the body class. It's kind of amazing. And uh, not everyone completes though. It's quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and there's actually a few people. This is like their third year doing it. They love it. But essentially, uh, we meet once a week on a Friday morning for a couple hours, and we practice the group of parts that we're going to work with for the next week. And it goes on from week to week to week. And this is actually uh, prescribed in some of the meditation texts to practice in this way. And so it works like this, that the first week we practice head here, body here, nail to skin in that particular order. Then the second week, we practice it backwards, skin, teeth, nails, body hair, head hair. And then the third week, we practice it forward and backwards, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, skin, teeth, nails, body hair, head hair. The fourth week, we start off with flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. We do that for one week forward, one week backwards, one week forward and backwards. Then in the seventh week, we start back with head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, 
We do that for one week forward, one week backwards, one week forward and backwards. Mm-hmm. Then we go on in the 11th week to heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs. So you get kind of the drift. It's an incredible zigzag. doing it that way it takes 8 months or 33 weeks and um, if you're interested in wanting to practice like that if you go to that website again this is not a commercial announcement there's no money involved in this it's all offered freely from me but there's actually a chart on how to practice it for 33 weeks and you can follow through the practices When it's practiced over an extended period of time, there's different aspects of doing this practice that begin to really help inform the practice to to potentially go deeper into the practice. This is actually called um, the tenfold skill in learning, which is really just a map that's really offering the meditator some help in working with the practice. So I'm not going to read all of these uh, out loud to you, but essentially they are guidelines and help to, to go through the order of the parts, not going so quickly, not going so slowly, trying to work with not getting so distracted, staying with the practice, and so forth. And... Um, One of the interesting aspects about this, particularly uh, when we are going through a very... um, Once we've gone through one week forward, one week backwards, one week forward and backwards, and then we begin to go back to the beginning again, and then we're repeating this long list forward and then backwards and forward and backwards. What's advised is to, when we're doing in those longer stretches, that we can begin to touch upon each of these parts But then what's recommended is to begin to listen to your own inclination, your own interest. A part is becoming particularly compelling. You're getting very interested in this one part and less so in others. And that might have already happened with some of you here. Some of the parts that you touched upon, like, this is really kind of interesting. I I could actually be here longer. Will and I were talking the other day, and like he was really getting into his teeth. And, you know, and then it's amazing, just different parts that we were like, huh, this is really um, compelling. And so, actually, this is called successive leaving, which is a very funny term. That's the word that's used. But what it implies is that you can begin to leave those parts that you're less interested in and then move much more deeply into the part that you are. And so... You might find in the, in the silence of the practice that we have here, there may be, maybe that you're still continuing to work with some of these parts, and you'd certainly be welcome if there's a particular part that's really coming to you that you feel very drawn to, very interested in, fine to leave others behind and begin to penetrate more deeply into one. As this begins to happen, we can use this practice to develop deeper levels of concentration that potentially can lead to absorption. In Pali, that's called jhana. There's various stages of absorption. We can also use this practice as a way to develop deeper insight, penetrating into this part to begin to experience, not just on a conceptual level, but a, a bodily experience of penetrating into its impermanence, its sense of where is this e- the egolessness of Where is this self to be found? It was actually, um, let me see if I can find it. Oh yeah, I got a note from one of our yogis here yesterday and commenting on the the body. said that, I have a hilarious thought about the egolessness of the body. It's not as if my liver cells are staging a coup to take over my gallbladder or they're tweeting to organize an abdominal spring event. <laughs> so, and I really appreciated the, 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 the sense of the, there was levity there, but it was also seeing like, like that these organs are not like, you know, like they're, they're doing their own thing. All right? They're doing their own thing. The self can't apply 
to say, spleen, don't do this, or love, don't do that. It's, it's just doing its thing. So this practice can go in ways of developing deeper absorption as well as deeper cultivating of insight. Recognizing this body is made of elements of solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature, revealing more of its egolessness quality, the impersonal quality of things. There's also some helpful uh, advice in in its tenfold skill in learning about um, recognizing when you need to to slow the brakes down, to restrain as you're working with the practice, you restrain. If you need to exert, then you bring your effort to exert. If something needs to be encouraged, you encourage it. If it needs to be balanced with equanimity, you balance it. These are all these different types of factors that are helping to support the practice to deepen, to develop balance, develop equanimity. That can lead to deeper levels of liberation. As the Buddha said, within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is the world, its origin, its cessation, its pathway to liberation. There was a yogi that asked me, so Bob, how, how long is a fathom? So fortunately I had the internet, I looked it up, and it's, uh, it's, it's six, about six feet 1.8 meters. And the fathom is a measurement of depth in water. Within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is the world, its origin, its cessation, its pathway to liberation. So as we dive into the body, we begin to experience our history, our thoughts, our emotions, our life. Mary Oliver has kind of a stunning uh, poem about the body. I thought I would read it to you. As only Mary Oliver can do. So, Blessed are the fingers, for they are darting as fire. Blessed the little hairs of the body, for they are softer than grass. Blessed the hips, for they are cunning beyond all machinery. Blessed the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are the strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when it's working it has a godly grip. Bless the feet, for their knuckles and their modesty. Bless the spine, for it is the whole story. The body. That's the name of the poem, The Body. By Mary Oliver. Got another note from a yogi um, that had taken this before. And she, this was coming back from the retreat, and she, her first night back home, she wrote me the next day and said, well, I just woke up from a crazy dream about being trapped in a secret spa that was taking all my money to do cosmetic procedures that I didn't want. (laughs) That is a nightmare. (laughs) And then she had to get up and get dressed and get ready to go to work, and she says, then I got in the shower and I noticed all my head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin, all morning, just those morning rituals of preparation for social presentation. (laughs) So why do we do this? Why do we do this? So I'd like to read to you a, a letter from a dear friend of mine who died. Her name was Gail Lewis. She was a mindfulness and yoga teacher, worked with me for many years, and got lung cancer. Died a couple of years ago. This is one of her last writings. She was writing to her friends. So she writes, Greetings, precious beings. So as the days of winter continue to nourish the earth with fluid from the skies, 
I've begun to contemplate the situation that I find myself in, there is an undercurrent of experience that I'm just waiting around to die. Strange thing when you're told that your time is limited and that many future projections just disappear from my consciousness. And now I'm left with this question of being fully awake in each passing day, hour, and minute. Old habits are really hard to change, so often I find myself just wasting time. Granted, I've had a lot more time now to meditate and to be still, but my mind keeps questioning just what I could be doing with this time left to me. I wonder if this is just the patterns of behavior that are familiar to me, keeping me busy, doing good works, all the messages that I have followed in the past. Now, though, I'm too tired to do much. And so the dilemma is allowing myself to let go of the old messages and discover new ways to enrich my day-to-day life. This, my friend, is a challenge. And I never realized how stubborn I am about who I think I am. So this weaker and more vulnerable me is trying to learn about allowing myself to just let go of the past and really step into this moment. Be a Lewis. And so why do we do this practice? And to me, the, the story of the Buddha has always been a story that has been very inspiring to me. And I know that probably many of you have heard this. And I've actually told this story a lot. And yet every time I tell it, I feel very inspired. It sometimes brings me even to tears. And it's a story of a human being, just like you and I, that lived and died. Siddhartha Gautama was uh, born into a uh, royal family. So maybe that's not like you and I, unless some of you have some royalty. Of course, royalty is just a concept. We all have royalty. He was born into this family, and... um, Father, very proud, and called in some astrologers to give some predictions, which was very common in that time in ancient India. And I believe there was four or five of them were there, and four said, oh, he'll become a great king like you, speaking to the, his father, the king. And one of them, the youngest one, Kodanya, said, no, he's going to become a Buddha. And... Um, the king didn't like the sound of that at all. He, he wanted his son to be a great king. and So after that event, the king decided to protect his son and shield him from anything that would disturb him. And so it's said that he lived for the first 29 years with a very peachy, creamy existence. He had the latest iPad and iPod and <laughs> the newest iPhone and everything of that day and time, whatever you could want, he had. Educated and got married and, you know, all was just nice. And in his 29th year, for an unusual occurrence happened that he uh, was with uh, his charioteersman, which I guess could be like his taxi cab driver, <laughs> or his, his person that takes him out in the palace. Um, they went out the charioteer. And the story goes that after a, a number of events that Siddhartha Gotama experienced and saw for the first time in his life aging, illness, and death. And this really shook him to his core. He somehow hadn't realized that this was a reality that would happen to him and to everyone. 
And sometimes I think about this story as more of a myth. But then sometimes I think, too, that, you know, how much have I been just so not wanting to know or to acknowledge my own demise or the demise of everyone that it just gets kind of suppressed and pushed away. But for whatever reason, in his 29th year, this could no longer be pushed away and there was this deep realization of, of death and aging. And this catapulted him into a sense of urgency. Actually, there's a beautiful Pali word. It's called samwega. And samwega means that when you really get that death will come to you and to everyone, when you get it on a molecular level, it may catapult you into a sense of spiritual urgency to understand what is the meaning of this life. I love it. Just one word in Pali, samwega. It's loaded. And then Siddhartha Gautama saw the fourth sign, which was this person walking out and in, in the village uh, with a very peaceful face, just wearing robes and head was shaved. And Siddhartha said, who's this person? And Chana, the chariotiersman, said, well, this is a person that's dedicated towards awakening, towards understanding the meaning of life. At that point, Siddhartha said, this is what I want to do. And so he went back to the palace and he prepared to go. He gave away everything that he had. And his father met him just as he was getting ready to leave and he was begging his son, don't go. And of course, his wife was pregnant and very close to giving birth, don't go. And Siddhartha said, if you can promise me three things, then I'll stay. The king got very excited because the king was like a billionaire. No problem, I can give you three things. And uh, the first, uh, so Siddhartha said, great, then please uh, prevent me from aging, prevent me from getting ill, prevent me from dying. The king couldn't grant that wish. But the king begged on, please, please, anything, anything. He says, Siddhartha said, how about two wishes? A glimmer of hope arose. Yes, two, I can do. Prevent me from aging prevent me from getting sick. King couldn't do it. Again, the king begged him, please don't go. Siddhartha said, prevent, how about just grant me one wish? A slight glimmer of hope arose. Siddhartha said, prevent me from dying. At that point, there was not much that um, the king could do and the story goes, and it's actually kind of a pretty amazing tale that he left the palace on the eve of when his wife was giving birth to his first son, who was named Rahula. Now, we'll get back to this, because right now it's like, hmm, left his wife and a baby? So the story goes on that he practiced very strenuously for a number of years, going from one teacher to the next, learning whatever they had to learn and still not understanding what is this life. Finally, he decided to practice very severe self-mortification. It is said that, that he limited his food supply down to one grain of rice a day and that eventually when he touched his belly, he could feel his tailbone, his backbone. At the brink of exhaustion and near death, Siddhartha realized the futility of self-mortification. He was practicing with a group of five ascetics. And he left them, and he went and got some food. And these ascetics thought, oh, God, this guy's really gone off the deep end. He's eating again. (laughs) And he got his strength back, and he got himself nourished. And not too far from uh, where he was um, regaining his strength, there was this big, beautiful tree, and he decided that he'd go and sit underneath this tree that became known as the Bodhi tree, tree of awakening. And he made a resolution that he was going to just stay there 
till he woken. And that he's tried being with many different teachers, many different things, and he's learned a lot along the way, but he needs to look inside himself. And it's said that as he began to sit, he recalled an incident when he was really young. And he was a child, and he was sitting by another tree. And he was looking out at this field and the farmers were, were there getting the soil ready to plant um, this year's uh, new rice paddies or new gardens. And it was one of those incredible spirit rock type days, blue skies, everything just perfect. And he was just relishing on how wonderful this was, and how beautiful this life is. And his sensitivity was greatly heightened and then as the farmers were like putting the plows into the earth, there was some type of just a sensitivity that happened that he could almost like hear the cries of the worms that were being cut open with the blade of the plow. And then what swept over him was this feeling of just the sadness of this world. And it was this really just position of the sadness of the world and the beauty this world. And he recalled as a young child that, that uh, maybe it was a way of helping to calm himself down. He just found himself being mindful of the breath in and the breath out. So he recalled this memory and he began to just practice reflecting on the beauty and the sorrows of this world. began to collect himself with his breath, being mindful of it coming in and going out. And as I mentioned um, a couple nights ago, that there was a vigil in that night of Mara, the tempter, trying to tempt the Buddha. Who are you? And trying to scare him and seduce him. And every time that Mara poured on these armies of temptation or fear, the Buddha would just say, I see you. Mara, and was undisturbed. And so it's said that in, um, in the early dawn, the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, became the Buddha. And the Buddha literally means the awakened one. And he experienced this deep understanding of life. And there's actually a very beautiful uh, verse that is attributed to the Buddha upon this awakening. Sometimes it's known as the lion's roar. And it says that through many a birth, I have wandered in the world of samsara. That's the world of birth, old age, disease, and death. And seeking not, finding the builder of this house. Sorrowful it is to be born again and again. But, O householder, thou art is seen. Thou shalt build no house again. All the rafters are broken and thy ridgepole is shattered. My mind has attained to the unconditioned. Achieved is the end of craving in ignorance. Very beautiful. What the Buddha understood underneath that Bodhi tree, what came to him was these four ennobling truths or observations about life. And the first one that the Buddha described was the noble truth of suffering, dukkha and pali. Now sometimes Buddhism and the Dharma gets a bad rap. Oh, they're just all into suffering. But actually the other three noble truths that I'm going to get into speak uh, of the ending of suffering. So... There's a very optimistic uh, journey ahead. In some ways, more from a colloquial expression, I would say, even though I I don't like to pick on the poor elephant, but our colloquial expression is that he named the elephant that's been sitting in the living room, as far as that there is indeed suffering. And that 
these are things that we can't escape from. And again, the other night I was sharing with you about these powerful remembrances that I am of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape from aging, cannot escape from illness, cannot escape from death, cannot escape from separation. This is the noble truth that says, and we all can understand that life doesn't always go the way you want it to go. And that this is inherent with life. One of the last of the five remembrances that I didn't say to you is something I would like to just read to you now. So again, the first one is, I'm of the nature to grow old. I cannot escape from growing old and then ill health, death, separation. But this last one, number five, is very important. These remembrances are something that I try to practice with every day. This number five is inviting us to take responsibility. It says that my deeds are my closest companions. I am the beneficiary of my deeds. My deeds are the ground on which I stand. This is a very powerful remembrance. It's inviting us to take responsibility ourselves. And in the Dharma, there's a beautiful Pali Probably words called ehi pasiko, to see for yourself with your own direct experience. And in our practices here, we're really inviting each of us to see for ourselves. And you don't have to, just as the Buddha said in the famous Kalama Sutta, the Charter of Free Inquiry, that you don't have to believe the teacher, the teachings, the books. See for yourself with your own direct experience. And I love this aspect of the Dharma. It's about investigation. See for yourself. Yeah, we might say, yeah, things are impermanent, but is it? Is it? Listen to the sounds that we're hearing, or the sensations we're feeling in the body, or the visual impressions we're seeing in our eyes and other senses and mind states. See if this is, is there, is that speak to you? Is your truth to that? See from your own direct experience. So the Buddha declared about this noble truth of suffering, of dissatisfactoriness, that this is part of our human condition. The second noble truth speaks to that there's suffering because there's a cause. There's a cause to suffering. It has to do with greed, hatred, and ignorance. The Dharma says that there's no fire hotter than greed, no ice colder than hatred, no fog thicker than ignorance. love to just read to you an absolutely beautiful translation, rendering of the second noble truth of the cause of suffering. This was written by Achan Amaro, who's an Englishman and a, a monk, actually a, a Tara, an elder monk at this point, and very wise human being, and he actually is also associated with Spirit Rock on the Teacher's Council. But he writes this, that um, this bhikkhus, or this monks, is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and that it is craving that is compelling, intoxicating, which causes us to be born into things again and again, ever seeking delight now here and now there. Namely, it's the craving for sensual delight, the craving to be something, and the craving to feel nothing. So I'll read this one more time. Pretty good, huh? Well, I don't know whether it's good. I like it. (laughs) I won't ask for your validation. I mean, I did, but I'll take it back. But this, this is, it just really gives me so this is the noble truth of the cause of suffering. It is craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Oh, I know that feeling of being intoxicated, wanting this. It's compelling. And it causes us to be born into things again and again and again. Ever seeking delight here. Ever seeking delight there. Namely, it's this craving for sensual delight. This craving to be something and the craving to feel nothing. 
This craving for sensual delight is like our eros. They actually, someone compared this as in Freudian psychology, and I don't want to claim that this is correct, but it make, this, it's like the eros instinct. It's this instinct for, to feel good. Endless wanting. <laughs> Just got my just stuck my hand in the water glass. <laughs> so that sense of a thirst that cannot be quenched. The craving to be something, I think we all know about that craving and that dukkha, that suffering. The craving to be seen, to be liked, to be, to be known. We lose ourselves. That craving to be someone also creates that sense of pride, conceit, paranoia. How much suffering have we experienced trying to be someone, trying to be seen, trying to fit in, trying to be connected? So that's kind of the ego. And the thanatos instinct, this Craving to feel nothing. How many times have we just not want, like, oh, I just want to not feel it. Just, oh, just push it away. To disappear. To have extinction. So the Buddha identified that these types of cravings for delight that at times can be un- not possibly quenched. The craving to be someone the craving to just turn away and to feel nothing, these are places that we get caught again and again. And of course, underneath this craving is this deeper layer of ignorance, unawareness. We don't know. Just like in India, sometimes in the old days, how the monkeys, how they would catch monkeys, is they would stick a, a banana down a big vase, and the monkey would, in a thin neck, and the monkey would put its hand in to grab the banana, and then would pull it out, and it couldn't get its hand out of the vase because it had the banana. And then the hunter would catch the monkey. The monkey didn't know that all it had to do was to let go. didn't know. So sometimes our ignorance, our unawareness, and ignorance, I don't mean this as an insult. Maybe the word unawareness is much better. It's this not knowing that the freedom is right here. How many of you can relate to this? This is from Kabir. So, friend, please tell me what I can do about this world that I hold on to and I keep spinning out. I gave up my sewn cloths and I wore a robe. But then one day I noticed the cloth was well woven. So I bought some burlap and I throw it still throw it over my shoulder very elegantly. I pulled back my sexual longings, and now I'm angry all the time. I gave up rage, and now I notice I'm greedy all day. I've worked hard at dissolving the greed, and now I'm proud of myself. So when the mind wants to break its link, it may still hold on to one thing. Third Noble Truth speaks to the end of suffering, which is the relinquishing of this ignorance and craving. The Third Zen Patriarch points this when he says that the great way, it's not difficult if you just don't have any preferences. Not so easy to relinquish our grasping and aversion, which is clouded by this ignorance. But what if we could begin to identify and to see more clearly that this holding of the banana, this holding, is imprisoning our heart. Kabir writes, and again another metaphor of the end of suffering, where he says that I went searching for a shop where the merchant would say, there's nothing of value here. I found it and I stayed. These are poems that arise out of the richness of not wanting. You can feel the spaciousness of that. Feel the spaciousness of Ed Brown, who's a Zen poet, priest, cook. He says, now I take time to peel the potatoes and wash the lettuce and boil the beets to scrub the floors, clean the sinks and empty the trash. I'm absorbed in the everyday 
And there I find time to unbind and unwind and to invite the whole body, mind, breath, thought, and the wild impulse to join and to bask in the task. There's no time lost thinking that somewhere else is better. No time lost imagining getting more elsewhere. No way to tell that this moment does not measure up. Isn't that a beautiful spaciousness right there? No time lost thinking somewhere else is better. No time lost imagining getting more elsewhere. No way to tell that this moment doesn't measure up. A lot of space there. Not this wanting, clinging, resisting. So then he ends the poem by saying, Now hand me the spatula, now's the time to taste what is. So we speak of this cessation, the lessening of our suffering through the eradication, the lessening of ignorance and craving. But how do we do it? And the fourth noble truth really, to me, offers a prescription of how to do it that is so complete and beautiful and thorough in every way. Said that if within the Eightfold Path, and you know, Buddhism, you might be getting to get a clue now that it's all about these numbers: is eight this, five that, six this, seven that, 32. and um, thirty-two this. <laughs> <laughs> So just a little side note. So, um, when the Buddha died, Ananda, who was his attendant and cousin and uh, monk, fellow monk, it turned out that he had a photographic memory or mind. or He memorized supposedly every single talk that the Buddha ever gave. And that's why every single sutta in discourse starts off with the words, thus have I heard. That's Ananda. Thus have I heard. And supposedly he um, recited all of the different discourses that the Buddha taught. And then, and, then, and then monks learned this and they passed this on for about 500 years orally. Because Pali is a oral language. And so to help compile this, it was putting it into numbers and lists was, was very, very helpful for memorization purposes. And then after 500 years, it was transliterated into Selene script and first written on banana palms. And um, it became, um, you know, so we have still the, the transliterated Pali. But Pali itself was an oral language. And to give a sense of how large the canonical literature is when we include the three baskets of the suttas, the Abhidharma, the uh, ethics, the Vinaya, commentaries. A couple of monks in Burma in the late, um, you know, like in the last 30, 40 years decided to take it on to see whether could they actually memorize the whole Tipitaka. And two of them did it. And my friend uh, Vesaraja, he, uh, he's an American monk. He, he met one of them and he, he asked him, well, how long does it take you to do it? And he says that, um, that this monk recites the Tipitaka for eight hours a day and it takes him a month and a half to complete from beginning to end to get a sense of like an Olympic athlete of memorization of the mind. So that's kind of the long story of the lists. Back to the Eightfold Noble Path. This path begins with wisdom in the sense of, there's a sense that I want to become free of suffering. I want to lessen my suffering. So these Eightfold Steps, first three come under the category of virtuous living. Wise speech, wise livelihood, wise action. It is said for, and the, the other two sections, just so I can frame it better for you, so that's virtue, concentration, wisdom. 
we can say that uh, at the base of the foundation to develop any type of collectedness of mind and concentration that grows into wisdom comes about through living virtuously, living with integrity. And so the Buddha spoke about the importance of our speech, that it be wise, that it be useful, kind, honest, timely, beneficial, that our livelihoods be ones that are not harming others, that our wise actions that we, are fought, we took on the first night, these precepts of not hurting living beings, not stealing, not committing sexual harm, not um, wise speech, and, and be having a clear mind, being free of intoxicants. So these are aspects that help build our way of living that produce harmony and protection and safety for ourselves and for others. When our mind and heart and life is aligned in that way, much easier to become more settled, more collected. And this is where these steps of concentration arise, the practices of wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. Because we're living with virtue, these practices of Concentration begin to grow. Wise effort speaks about the restraining and the abandoning of ways of living that, that are, do not serve us, to, to, to restraining from defilements of mind, and also developing and then maintaining wholesome states of mind. So this is all aspects of wise effort. Restraining and abandoning those ways that don't serve us, developing and maintaining ways that do. And when I speak about serving us, I'm speaking about serving, cultivating the lessening of greed, hatred, ignorance, and developing the qualities of kindness, generosity, compassion, clarity, practice. The other aspect is wise mindfulness, which we've been practicing here in the retreat, cultivating the foundations of mindfulness of the body, of feelings, of mind states. And of course, there's this wise concentration. We're beginning to work with collecting our mind and our hearts, helping to stabilize the mind. These aspects of effort, wise effort, and mindfulness and concentration bring us to deeper wisdom. As I mentioned earlier, it begins with wisdom that gets us on the path and ends with wisdom. This wisdom is about deep understanding, wise understanding or view. You begin to understand more deeply about suffering, its causes, and its pathway to its end. We begin to understand in taking that responsibility that our own mind, that the mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own very thoughts. This is a very powerful statement. This is the beginning of the Dhammapada, the mind is the creator of our own heavens and our own hells through our own thoughts. That's why the Dharma is so much emphasizing the culture of our mind, of our investigation. The other aspect is called wise intention or thought. And the first is a word that many of us will go, ooh, it's called renunciation. (laughs) But there's actually a beautiful translation for that. It's the renunciation of self-destructive tendencies. Isn't that beautiful? I like it again. The renunciation of self-destructive tendencies. This is when we speak about renunciation. It's about renouncing tendencies that don't serve our health and our well-being. This is the real heart and essence of renunciation. Ridding ourselves, diminishing these self-destructive tendencies. Also, this intention is the intention of cultivating goodwill, guided by loving kindness, the intention of harmlessness, guided by compassion. So these are all very beautiful qualities of walking in this eightfold path that serve our way towards greater freedom and peace. This greater freedom and peace helps us to see more clearly through this misconception of self. No doubt we all have our self-running narrative 
the Bob Show, the Will Show, the Marcy Show, and everyone else's show here in town. And it's a good show for some of it, and some of it's a tale of woe. 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows. This is what we get to work with, myself, my story, my life. And I believe that this practice in time begins us to help see that maybe the stories that we define about who it is that we are is not the full story. That maybe they are self-limiting definitions. Just like the other night I shared with you, I had a friend of mine that for a while in his life he was King Minus. Everything he touched turned to, everything he touched broke. And if we believe in that type of story, it's a, it's a deep tale of woe. So we begin to examine with our awareness, who is this self, this I? This is the perennial question. And perhaps we begin to discover that there's misconceptions, that there's colors, just like if we put on a colored glass and we see the world through a different color, we begin to see through different lenses and mindfulness is perhaps beginning to wash some of these lenses to begin to see more clearly. The seeing more clearly is seeing more clearly into characteristics of life. And the, the practices of the body begin to reveal to us the egolessness or the ownless nature. Where is the self to be found? That things are constantly changing the ephemeral aspects of life. And of course, if we don't understand this, we get caught in the conceptions we experience a lot of dissatisfactoriness, a lot of pain. I might embarrass Will here. These, these are actually called the three characteristics of existence. Egolessness, or ownlessness, impermanence, ephemeralness. And of course, when we don't understand these two, how there can be dissatisfactoriness, suffering. Um, why I'm saying I might embarrass Will, because I'm good friends with his father, John. And John has a very wonderful colloquial expression of three characteristics that I just love. And so, for dukkha, or, or dissatisfactoriness, he says, shit happens. For in, impermanence, things change. For egolessness, don't take it personally. And I, I just really love, um, you know, that down-to-earth language. And we all can recognize shit does indeed happen from time to time. Things are changing. And yes, do we take it personally? And there is a lot of pain when that happens. The Buddha said that the body is without self. If there was a self, the body would not be subject to suffering. You could say, let the body be this, let it be that. Very difficult to assert. Acham Buddhadasa says, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Acham Buddhadasa was a Thai forest master. He says, to understand this is to heal all illness and sorrow. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives in a type of avoidness with an open and free heart that doesn't cling to anything. This is the peace of Nibbana. It is always here, available whenever we let go. So maybe I'll just end, though I could go on for some more time. But I'd like to maybe just, uh, that's a very beautiful thing about in what he says, that uh, whenever we let go, we can experience this peace. And my teacher, Tung Pulusero, in his last tour to the United States, gave a, a series of teachings in this particular time, he just gave these three contemplations for us to work with. And he said that this particular meditation would be very good for when you're dying and also in the sense of experiencing a taste of freedom. And so I'd like to just offer you a taste of freedom. So you can just sit in a position that's comfortable. And it's very simple. And he just brings some words to the breath and says, if you want to know the state of a heart that's free... Breathing in and breathing out, experiencing no grasping, no greed. And that breath in and that breath out.
Then the next inhalation and exhalation, breathing in and out, experiencing no hatred, no aversion. And then lastly, breathing in and out, experiencing no ignorance, no unawareness. You clearly know that you're breathing in as you're breathing in and breathing out as you're breathing out. So this clarity of mind. So maybe just one more cycle, breathing in and out, no greed, breathing in and out, no hatred, breathing in and out, no unawareness. So, thank you. And I think I want to just tell you um, one more story. You can just relax if you need to shift your body. It's not going to be a long one, but this was a, a gift that was passed on to me by my teacher, Lainditzetto, and I really would like to pass it on to you. Since we've been having some conversations about death. So, on my um, very last trip to Burma to see my teacher, Lainditzetto, who died at the age of 98 about seven, eight years ago. You know, I visited him, it was probably about 10 years ago when I visited him. And at the time, he was um, probably like about 92. So he lived another few years and died at 98. And on my very last night with Seto, it was my last conversation with him and you know, I didn't know whether I'd ever see him again. I was heading back to the States, and he was 92. And so I said to Cero, you know, this might be my last time that I'll ever see you. And it turned out that it was. But I asked Cero, I said, please, Cero, I, I've learned so much from you, and, but I have one more question for you. And I said, Cero, you're 92, and... Um, you're already over the average lifespan that a human being lives. And I'm just really curious, you've been a monk for um, um, many years. It was like about 70 years at that point. I says, what are you going to do when death comes knocking at your door? What are you going to do? And he looked at me for quite some time and then he smiled. And then he looked at me and he said, Bob, are you afraid to die? And he could see that I, I was not expecting. I was asking him the question, what he was going to do. And, and I was like, like so he could see I was pretty shook, shaken up with that question. And he looked at me for a long time. And I, and I said, uh, and then he just looked at me a long time. Then he said, you're going to need to meditate more. <laughs> And I said, you're, you're damn right, Seto. I may have not said damn, but I felt it inside me. And so I acknowledged it. You know, I was younger then. I had young children. So, you know, I was like, I'm going to be here. And um, so then I said again, Seto, okay, I'm going to meditate. What are you going to do? So I asked it a second time. And then he looked at me again for a long time. And then he smiled. And then he said something to me that I'll never forget as long as I live. So this is a very quiet, simple, humble as the earth could ever be of a forest monk. As a matter of fact, sometimes I would at night be with Seto. Late in the night, I'd lie on the floor while he'd just be sitting in his chair. And I'd listen to him breathe and it felt like I was in a deep forest the winds. So Seto said, after looking at me for a long time, he said that if I see something, I will be mindful of seeing. If I hear something, I will be mindful of hearing. If I feel something, I will be mindful of feeling sensations. If I smell or taste something, I'll be mindful of smelling or tasting. 
If there's mind states that are arising in awareness, I'll be mindful of mind states. This is how I will die, and this is how I want you to die. I like that. Matter of fact, I told my grandmother who died at the age of 103, and I told her when she was around 100, that story. And even my old Jewish grandmother from Russia said, you know, that's a pretty good idea. He's wise. <laughs> even, even Grandma Nettie, she, she thought that was actually a pretty good idea, to die with your eyes open and be there for it. She got it. If you see something, feel something, hear something, meeting it with an open heart. So let's just take a moment and we'll end. May all beings dwell with peace. So thank you very much and sorry for going over a little bit and we have our interviews and we'll continue on and please continue with the practice. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.